I've often wondered uh, what it is that make mountains tops so attractive. And I, I don't mean just for mountaineers, but for the rest of us. Most people, I think, have a special feeling for mountains. Um, I'm sure you've heard the term a mountaintop experience, um, when something amazing happens. But what is it that makes those experiences so special? Is it because we still think that it puts us closer to heaven? So going up a mountain feels like we're getting closer to God? Well, it might be, but I can assure you that it isn't mere altitude that does that. Um, I've been in an aeroplane at 30,000 feet, uh, looking over the snow-covered mountains of New Zealand and haven't felt any sense of being nearer to God. Is it perhaps the feeling of being separated from our normal world, of the ruggedness of the mountain and the wilderness of our surroundings that reminds us of our place in a world made by God, not by humans? Or is it perhaps that we stand on the mountaintop, we can look down and see the world laid out before us and realise just how small our part of the world is by comparison to the larger reality. Well, whatever it is, the mountaintop has always played an important part in human spirituality, whether it's the... uh, the Celtic mystics that build the stone uh, standings on hilltops, or a Hindu holy man who sits alone on the hill and meditates day and night. It's certainly true about the judo Christian experience. The mountaintop was a place where God showed Abraham the land of Canaan and promised him all he could see in every direction. It was the place where he was, take, he was also taken to test his faith with the sacrifice of Isaac. It was the place where Moses first encountered God and where later he was given the Ten Commandments. It was the place, also the place where Moses was given a glimpse of God and where Elijah was taken for reassurance that God was still with him. And here it is in our passage today, we find Jesus going up a mountaintop to meet with God. Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James and John, and leads them up the high mountain where they they were all alone. While While they were there, Luke tells us that it was while Jesus was praying, he was transfigured before them. That is, his face begins to shine and his clothes become dazzling white. The implication is that this is the manifestation of God's glory in Jesus. The shining face is like the change that came over Moses when he had been speaking to God in the tabernacle during the Exodus. The bright clothes are a sign of purity and God's glory like the description given to the angels of God in various places. The three disciples are given a brief glimpse of a reality beyond their human experience, a hint 
of the true nature of Jesus, who they've only just recently proclaimed to be the Messiah. I think it's very significant that all three synoptic gospels um, place this event immediately after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and subsequent explanation by Jesus of his coming. That is, to die on a cross and rise again in three days. The disciples were distressed at at that fact, that Jesus would immediately begin to talk about his death. But they needed to realise that there was more to Jesus than than they'd so far perceived. That their human perceptions were so short of the mark that they needed to rethink them. But perhaps Jesus also needed reassurance that his understanding was correct. Here he was proclaiming the way of the cross and those nearest to him were telling him he must be mistaken. Remember that Jesus was both human and divine. He had divine insight into his future path but he also had the human limitations of knowing for certain what was ahead. So when his disciples started to question what he was thinking, perhaps he needed to be reassured. I mean, it's true about us, isn't it? When things are difficult or things are awkward, we need reassurance. That is why it is important that we maintain constant fellowship with other Christians. Because otherwise the doubts and the pressures of the world wear away at us. Otherwise, those, those doubts about the truth of the gospel, those doubts start to build up in our minds and to begin to wear away at our faith. We need to be reminded constantly of the God who came and died for us, whose lordship is shown by his victory over death. We need to be reminded that serving him is worth any price. So too, perhaps, Jesus needed to be reassured and his resolve strengthened for the task that lay ahead. And so God sends Moses and Elijah to speak with him. Luke tells us that they were speaking about his departure, literally his exodus, which he would fulfil at Jerusalem. Those two men are significant because of what they represent. Moses represents the law, which Jesus had come to fulfil. But he also was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who first brought his people out of slavery into freedom to the promised land. It was under Moses that the people of Israel became a nation. So too, it was under Jesus that the people are freed from slavery to sin and a new nation would be formed. Though this time, based on faith in Jesus, rather than obedience to the law. Elijah, on the other hand, represents the prophets, those whom God had sent 
to call the people back to himself. Jesus had come to provide the true way the people could be brought back to God. Elijah's coming again was to be a sign of the kingdom of God coming into the world, which Jesus was now bringing in. As well as all this, both Moses and Elijah had made unusual departures from this life. Moses just disappeared. And Elijah was just taken to heaven. They were both well qualified to minister to Jesus as he contemplated the suffering that lay before him. These two, more than any other, represent all the painstaking care and preparation of God for the fulfilment of his plan for his people. I guess we can, and I certainly do, sympathise with Peter for his over-enthusiastic outburst. It was all too much for him. He was overwhelmed by the situation. Those of you that know me know that I am prone to getting a little overexcited by things. He says, and this is also one of my traits, he says the first thing that comes into his head, let's put up three shelters. Let's put up three shelters for the three of you. Or is he perhaps thinking of three memorials? Some way to capture the moment and preserve it. It is a natural response of the human heart to the religious and the supernatural to want to tie it down and make it solid and visible. Something that we can come back to later. Something that will help us relive the moment. But as we read the account, we realise just how inadequate such a gesture would have been. How could any memorial capture the significance of what's happening here? Oh, in any case, if we're in doubt about the significance of this event, a cloud now comes down and envelops, envelops them all. And a voice speaks in the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. Again, we're reminded of Moses on Mount Sinai, surrounded by a cloud with thunder and lightning and trumpets blasting. Perhaps too we're reminded of the people of Israel going off and making a golden calf as a symbol of the God they were following and of God's response to that attempt. Well, there aren't sounds of thunder or trumpets, but there is the voice of God, loud and clear. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the icing of the cake, isn't it? If we're in any doubt about the significance of all this, that doubt is removed by this word from God. Jesus isn't just a healer. He isn't just a great wonder worker or great teacher or even one of the greatest prophets. This is the very Son of God. Come to bring salvation to all people 
and to be crowned king forever. And if you've got any sense, what will you do? You'll listen to him. And then as quick as all this happened, it's over. The cloud is lifted and they're on their own. Only Jesus is standing there. I wonder, I wonder what they'll think. Have they dreamt it? It all seems so very real. But wasn't. How would they know? Well, the truth is they won't know until the, after the resurrection when they see the evidence before their very eyes that this wasn't a dream, that this was true, that God was giving them a taste before the event of what they would discover in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about what they've seen. Well, I wonder how the three disciples felt as they came down from the mountain. Were they exhilarated by the event that they just witnessed? Events that hadn't been seen in Israel for 2,000 odd years? Were they perplexed once again by Jesus? Were they aware of the privilege they just enjoyed of being present when Jesus' glory was revealed in this way? What about Jesus? What about Jesus when he came down the mountain? Was he encouraged and strengthened by this encounter? Did he come down the mountain with a renewed energy and enthusiasm for the task ahead? Well, I guess so. As we will see, as we know the story and what the end is. Well, we too often find it completely bewildering to know how to understand all that God is doing and saying, both in our times of great joy and in our times of great sadness. But the word that comes to us, leading, leading us on to follow Jesus, even when we haven't a clue what's going on, is the word that came from the cloud on that strange day in Galilee. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Amen.